Welcome to the ninth episode of Resuscitating the Business of Humanity. The title of this episode is The Third Position. The date is April 17th, 2020. The location is Des Moines, Iowa. And I am Gary William Bear. During the 90s, basically from 1989 to about 2001. I would travel at least once a year to a location where I could participate in a silent retreat, which took place over two weeks. At these retreats, there would be two to three hundred people who had come there, like myself, to avail themselves of the opportunity to be in silence. And while it often seemed like a good idea before one arrived, when one showed up and participated in the activities there, it wasn't as easy to be in silence as one might think. So what would happen is that the, the first day that you're there, you would be invited to form yourself into groups. So there would be, like I said, two or 300 people, there would be groups of six, and there would be 50 groups of six sitting in this large hall. And in this particular time, this particular instance that I'm referring to, it was at Alpine village near Lake Tahoe. And so it was in the summertime when there was no snow on the ground and the facility, which was a ski resort was available for uses like this. So you have these 50 groups of six people and they were all invited to spend a half an hour to 45 minutes, meaning each person was offered the opportunity to speak amongst their, the immediate group about who they were, why they were, how they got there. And clearly, uh, people have issues in their lives. Some are just getting married. Some are just getting divorced. Somebody died. Someone lost their job. Some people are just burned out. There's just so many things. And this was an opportunity for people to sit and talk about <laughs> the woes of their life and to uh, relate. And that was what was uh, the subject matter or the activity of the early part of the first day. And then by the evening, we were given instructions and it's all voluntary. You know, it's not like no one's going to hold a gun to your head if you say something, but it was voluntary to be in silence. And what that meant was that you were not to speak verbally to others. You were not to try to do sign language or write notes. You were not to um, read books or watch TV or do anything other than participate in the practices of silence. Uh, some of this was guided meditation during the time you were there for the two weeks and also we were broken up into teams where we would take turns preparing the food, 
<laughs> cleaning up after the food had been um, consumed. And it was really kind of comical <clears throat> to experience how it was to be in the kitchen and cooking food with other people when you couldn't actually say what the hell it was you wanted to make. But somehow people, no one died, no one was poisoned and everything went fine and the meals were basically pretty good. And when we weren't in any of those activities where we were cooking or cleaning or participating in the the classwork or the, the sessions, we were invited to be with nature. Again, not speaking. And that meant we would go for a walk or we lie out in the sun or sit against a tree or um, just hang out. Now, what was really interesting about this is that when you or I decide that we're not going to talk, it reveals how much chatter is going on inside the brain, in the mind, and that the mind wants to chew on this thing or this opinion or this belief or this other thing. And you become very much aware of how much decisions and judgments and opinions are going on inside the mind. And this is precisely the purpose of not speaking because by not speaking, you become more aware of what is taking place in your mind. And over the course of several days, and mind you, this was a two-week period. So over the course of several days, you begin to stop fighting with the tendency to speak. You become amazed at how much chatter is going on inside your head. And then a point in time comes when it just goes really still. And because there's no point in talking, because, I mean, you, you're not going to talk about anything. There's no point in thinking about that thing which you were going to then talk about. And in my case, something interesting happened, which I never shared with anybody, which was that I found that before the urge to speak occurred, that there was this image in my mind, like a, a picture or a movie screen, and it wasn't really clear. It wasn't um, as clear as it would be if I was looking at a television. But there was a distinct image of what I appeared like speaking those words. And then, uh, of course, I didn't, most of the time I kept the silence. So I got deeper and deeper. And at one point I noticed that whenever I chose to move my hand or nod my head or do anything with my body that just an instant before I took that action, there was that image of me doing that. And I wondered, why is it that I'm given this guidance, this, this uh, instruction about what I can do before I do anything? How is it that it's so hidden and, and intimate to me and yet I don't notice it? What I ultimately came to realize was that everything that I'm experiencing, that you are experiencing, 
that we all experience inside of us that comes up uninvited is coming as a form of information, a form of guidance, a form of instruction. And because of the way we live our lives, because of the tendency to be polarized in our thinking, we don't notice this. What we notice is that we think out there, there are things, positions of right and left, black and white, up and down, um, in the same way that we learn about this coronavirus, for example. One side is saying, of the narrative is saying one thing, and another side is saying another thing. And then you have the political role where one side is saying one thing and the other side is saying this other thing. And you can go down the line in terms of the issues that are presented to us in our life. And there's always someone out there, some group or organization promoting this point of view and this organization promoting the contrary point of view. And because of that tendency to see that, we forget that inside of us, there is a preceding or precedent point of view against which we compare everything in the world. That's why when we engage with people or we go through our lives and we pick up activity and we do things without noticing, as I've described to you, that this impulse is arising within, that there's this vision or notif uh, notice or there's this um, guidance about standing up and walking across the room or speaking. Or, even though we overlook it and we don't notice it, there's still this expectation somehow in us that the world should be different than what it is. Either it's whether it's the left pole or the right pole, the up pole or the down pole, what I'm talking about are these opposites. In our consideration of the opposites, we lose sight of what is actually operating inside of us. And we sometimes feel, we often feel hopeless in the world that because none of the polarized, polarized views, none of these different points of view fully capture what we hold in ourselves, dare I say, in our heart about how we want the world to be. The way that we want the world to be is our own inner vision, which is comes from the same place as the impulse to move my hand or the unauthored, the unauthored thought that I next say. It all comes from the same place. But we aren't taught about the value of this. In fact, we're not even taught that every time we think a thought, our vocal cords vibrate. And that is a form of speech. And therein lies the power of thought and the power of prayer. Because when not speaking anything out loud, 
you are still causing things to come into manifestation through the agency of that silent speaking, which is the thinking. And the emotion is already there in the emotion quotient. All that's already going on. I bring this up because of late I've been in conversation with a young lady who is really smart. She's about 40 years of age, got a master's in literature, has a near photographic memory, and she has a background in, uh, in literature, historical literature, in uh, art and architecture, in different types of spiritual systems, belief systems, and esoteric knowledge as well. And she has been very frustrated of late because the two points of view that are uh, being the narrative about where the world is going, that this polarized position, she understands implicitly about the distortion, the misinformation and misdirection that is operating in both of them so that she cannot fully invest herself in either point of view, either position. And then the other day, just a few days ago, we were on the phone and she said, you know, I've decided that I don't care what those other points of view are espousing. I choose what I see in my interior, in my inner space. I choose that as what I want in the world, how I want the world to be. Now, I share this with you because throughout history, we are often observing how people feel or seem to feel like they have no voice in the world. They have no, they, they don't, uh, they're not going to be on Oprah Winfrey or Ellen, you know, the Ellen show, or they're not going to be a polit political person. They're not going to have that place of external visibility to say their piece about the world. And if someone has a message that they think is important or a point of view that they think is important, the fact that they don't have a platform from which to speak makes that person feel unempowered. But what this young lady was articulating to me was that by aligning and owning the truth of her own experience, it brought power and peace. It was, there was a truth in it that all she could do, and in fact, all she needed to do was to remember to decide what the world would be that she wanted to live in, what kind of life she wanted for herself. And that was the place from which she decided to, I notice, she says, I notice these other points of view and I notice their, the silliness of them, but I choose this for myself. Now, there's a movie that I recently watched, and it's really curious how the subject matter of these talks evolve because I'm ever looking for a way to articulate a path of understanding 
about how we free the human will. And curiously, I find myself guided to have conversations. I don't even know that I, I wasn't even thinking of having this conversation with this young lady. In fact, I was not wanting to have the conversation. It came from her side. And like that, I'm watching this movie called The Field of Dreams with Kevin Cosner and um, James Earl Jones. And if you haven't seen the movie, I recommend you going and watching it or renting it or downloading it because it illustrates this point very clearly. It's basically about a, a farmer in Iowa who starts hearing these voices that tell him to go the distance, to ease his pain and instruct him, show him with this vision in his mind that he's supposed to plow down about 10 acres of his corn crop before harvest and build a baseball diamond. And so, you know, his wife is very supportive. And so he does that. He plows down the, the field and he builds a baseball diamond. He puts up lights and puts bleachers up and makes the, the chalk outline of the field and everything. And then he, the voice says, you need to go to Boston. And so he finds this guy, Terrence Mann, who was a literary hero for that farmer when he was a young man, when he was 16 or 17. And through the, a series of events, he comes back to his farm and at the baseball field is now populated with about 20 dead professional ball players, including shoeless Joe Jackson. And they have walked out of the cornfield, first one and then two and then three. And now they're out there playing on the field. And these guys are just having a great time playing baseball. Meanwhile, Kevin Cosner's character, Joe Kinsella, no, Ray Kinsella, I think it is, Ray Kinsella. He um, is out of money and his wife's brother, his brother-in-law, have bought the deed to his property and are. there's a point in time where his brother-in-law is standing in front of him while Ray is sitting in the bleachers watching these guys play in the background. The brother-in-law cannot see any of the players on the field. It looks to him as if Ray and his wife, Terrence Mann, played by, um, what's his name again? It doesn't matter. Um, and uh, the daughter, they're, they're just sitting there. Four of them are sitting in the bleachers watching the baseball game going on. And the brother-in-law is ranting and raving and trying to get him to sell the farm to him and his partners because if he doesn't, he'll foreclose and he'll have nothing. Now, <clears throat> this is a perfect analogy of what we're talking about. Ray is looking at the fact that he has been guided by the inner voice and inner vision to do this thing, to, to plow down 10 acres of his crops and allow these dead guys to play baseball in the Iowa sun. And he believes that his daughter and the Terrence man and his wife can see it. And that's great. But there's this guy standing in front of him telling him the way of the world that if you don't have money, you're going to have this and this and this and this. And during the middle, in the middle of this interaction, um, 
the baseball game stops and most of the players walk kind of to the sideline to hear the outcome because if Ray decides to sell the property, that field is going to go away. And so Ray is faced with the decision to the decision is between three things. There's what his daughter, his wife, and Terrence Mann are saying, keep the field, keep the field. You know, people will come, people will pay. And what the brother-in-law is saying, which is sell it, sell it, sell it. And then there is the truth of it, which is his vision inside for why he did it, which is what is being played out on the baseball field. And so he ultimately decides to keep the field and to basically say yes to his inner vision. And this is what each of us must do on our path to freeing our will. We must say yes to our inner vision. We must see what's going on in our world, regardless of what it is, and never let go of the fact, the truth, that in us we hold a different view of how we want the world to be. This is important because, as you will find as you continue to just become more discerning about the two points of view that are presented to you at any point in time, you will notice that there is a tendency to give up or even not even notice what is going on inside of you in favor of aligning with one or other pole where neither of them are really what you want. And this is a great deception that takes place in our world where we abdicate our third position in favor of two less desirable ones, which is why we never arrive at the place where we seek. In closing, I wanted to share this with you because this triune structure of equal values is a powerful modality for reorganizing life. But it is guided by the same principle by which you are guided in each of your moments. And because of this, it is very important that we create the best that we can in the world, guided by, informed by, the, that image, that vision we all hold for how wonderful life can be. And this doesn't mean that we don't take action and respond to these two other poles that are in the world. And we, we, we take appropriate action with respect to them when they come into our sphere of influence, meaning when there's something that we can or, or are able to do with respect to them. 
but we must always, always, always hold tight to the vision of possibilities that has been gifted us in all of the moments of our life. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you later.